on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. The way that we relate to these phenomena of toxic masculinity, all of these things, is the very thing that generates more toxic masculinity. What these guys need is purpose. They need to be seen. They need to be validated by an elder male, a mentor. Like, I see your potential. I see that something lives in you that is quite magnificent and the world needs it. And the fact that we don't have that narrative running at almost at any level of society is just a testament, Ian, to how spiritually anemic and, and, and immature we are as a culture. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Ivan Skillam, an expert in the field of archetypes and masculine psychology. He's also the founder of Reclaim Your Inner Throne, an online three-month program aimed at guiding men through an initiatory framework of transformation. In our conversation today, Ivan shares about his earlier challenges with chronic fatigue syndrome and how that forged his creativity to craft the inner throne framework. We discuss our childhood experiences with video games and their impact on our mythological worldview as well as the dangers of young men left in the underworld, where isolation can turn to rage. And finally, he speaks of the importance of male mentorship to model a life of purpose and service to the world, which is ultimately the hero's quest young men crave. Before we begin, I wish to let you know about the Mythic Masculine Network. It's an online community of artists, activists, poets, parents and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. If you wish to dive deeper into the themes explored in this podcast, head over to themythicmasculine.com slash network and learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Ivan Skillam. Welcome, Ivan Skillam, to the show. Thanks, Ian. Good to be here. I'd love to begin my interviews by asking the guests to share a little of where they are in this moment, geographically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever feels true to share. Hmm. Today, that's a very big question. Currently, I'm standing at my desk at home in Oslo, Norway, and um, feeling grateful and excited to be here with you to have this conversation. I've enjoyed your show when I listened to it in the past, so I'm a fan. Um, it was it was a pretty big day for me today. Um, I I have my own podcast, Walking with the Archetypes, uh, sometimes recorded in the morning, in the or sometimes in the afternoon, and when I walk with my partner Michelle, and we were just out in this frozen lake, just in the woods, ten minutes away by car from here, and nature here in Norway is absolutely absolutely incredible right now we've had a very cold winter and as you know when the weather is really cold it's also really sunny and and beautiful and um so we're out on this frozen lake and 
Michelle, who's not from around here, she was born and raised in both Hong Kong and in the United States. She's still kind of blown away by this concept of walking on a lake. So I'm just enjoying her. But then we we went up the side of the lake, up into the woods, as I'd literally just finished an episode where I was sharing some revelatory experience that I had back in December and which was intense for me to do because it was so intimate and big and we walk up this path um, surprisingly there's not so much snow on the ground um, but the, these big you know frozen over bodies of water actually on the side of the hill so I guess it must have been some creeks or whatever but all of a sudden there's this big animal in front of us we lock eyes with this moose and we just stand there enthralled and we, like like for a good minute just looking and whenever I've had some big transformational moment in my life it's always been preceded by a meeting with an animal of that kind a deer or a stag or an elk moose whatever so I'm just feeling like I've been contacted today <laughs> That, mm. that I feel very much in a soulful and guided place right now. And um, it's very appropriate for me to be here to speak with you just after that happens. Mm. Well, the signs have been sent. Indeed. <laughs> well, I'd love to offer the listener too a sketch a little of, um, I mean, how I came to understand or to hear about your work for the first time, which um, actually was the interview that you did with Charles Eisenstein. Mm you know, a number of years ago, which I understand is, is remains a popular conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Charles was also on a bit of a quest to, to understand, you know, the, the new story of masculinity. And it's actually something that him and I spoke on an earlier episode of this podcast. Mm. I asked him, you know, what did he learn on his quest? And um, I certainly remember hearing your interview because, you know, one, I was, um, I was impressed by the level of, it was almost like a languid depth to the conversation. Yeah. I you know, there wasn't, that. yeah, there was no hurry. There was no, <laughs> yeah, no rushing. It was just like, wow, you really, really felt as a listener, you just kind of sink in, you know? And um, the other was the depth of the mapping that you had done in your work. I believe you really had, a, we're offering some sense of the journey that you'd crafted for, uh, I understand, for men or for the yeah. masculine. And uh, and I was really impressed by the level of yeah, detail and nuance that you had. And, you know, before we get into the, depth of our conversation mm -hmm. today. I mean, I wonder if you would just take a moment to sketch out, you know, broad strokes, though, what is the, the sort of nature of the work that you offer? Yeah, thanks. So, um, I, I founded Reclaim You in a Throne, which is the organization that I'm, that I'm running, back at the end of 2014, after a, a series of cascading events that started with me meeting a stag. <laughs> uh. um, so there is, there is this powerful presence of a mythical nature, uh, magic realm in my work that has come in large part out of suffering. Because I had a, a period, an extended period of chronic fatigue after just what seemed like a normal period of glandular fever. Um, mm. 
And I was very careful not to overexert myself because I know the dangers of chronic fatigue after that. The various stubborn strategic ways of doing things that um, I had structured my life around up until that moment, they just collapsed. They collapsed all around me. Because I didn't have a body that collaborated with those strategies anymore. And um, and so that was a, a descent that was quite excruciating, to be frank. You know, I remember sitting with a, a dear friend of mine saying, I'm not sure I'm going to make it, you know, and he just laughs at me. So of course, you're going to make it. Don't be don't be dramatic. And I, and I was dramatic, but it, it was just a um, symptom of the level of depth that I'd sunk to in, in this soul, soulful decay place you know i was composting my identity in many ways over, over an extended period of time and and so through that uh, through that uh, i i happened to open um to a new body of work um i i was challenged by some coaches that i was working with at the time and just get on with it you know because because they could they they felt that whatever i was going to birth it was actually ready to be birthed and so basically it was a an experiential process for both the participants and myself because this training came through me like one week at a time and um and by the end of it um well bear in mind going into the training while i'd done a lot of powerful work analyzing archetypal themes and movies and stuff before that i didn't know that i could put together a powerful training yet strangely at the end of that training like the men the 14 men that had participated in unison just communicated like i've never been part of anything like this like Hmm. what the hell you know and so i knew that i had found something and i haven't looked back since and is this training the the, maybe the very first reclaim your inner throne that was the first reclaim your inner throne it's a three-month training uh, it used to be 10 weeks and then it was 12 and then it's 13. And this next, next upcoming training is going to be the first 15 week training. And I don't think it's going to grow, but it's, it's bolts to the wall intense. It is a very humbling encounter with your fear and with your demons and with your wounds. And you, like, I was, I was having a conversation with uh, this incredible man, an alumnus, um, his space in Australia earlier today. And we were talking about, how so many men these days would come up to this place of meeting our fear and rather than open that door and go through, we're just like, nah, no, I'm good. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on this side, you know? And when you come and reclaim me in a throne, you decisively and decidedly, you open the door and you go through and you're reborn in the process. You know, this makes me think of uh, the scene in Iron John um, where, you know, the boy crawls up to the wild man's cage yeah. And uh, the wild man has the ball, which, you know, had, had slipped into the cage. And the boy's there and saying, you know, can I have my ball back? And the wild man says, you know, not until you let me out. And uh, Bly, you know, in that book, which I'm sure you've read, has such a beautiful line where he says, most men leave and never come back. Yeah. To that moment, right? And, and I hear a little bit in what you're sharing there, this, yeah, this coming to that threshold. Uh, and, and often, you know, the the seduction to turn away because of the uncertainty because of what you know a man might yeah. find um 
so so take me now after that having done it sounds like a number of years now of these kinds of trainings um i'd be curious to just get a again a broad stroke of like what do you what themes do you recognize in the participants like what are they showing up with what is their yearning what is their longing um that that you see as you know sort of representative of what's missing in the culture at large yeah it's i think in large part because of the mythological tone of the training we attract a particular demographic or a particular kind of guy so it is typically a guy that is quite familiar with the imaginal realm it's typically a guy that is um, deeply um in love with fairy tales maybe maybe he's like a big tolkien tolkien fan you know he know he knows some of the classic stories Beowulf and King Arthur's men, like the Arthurian lore and all, like these kinds of um, these kinds of narratives and and ways of viewing the world are often very present for him. And and I don't know if you've noticed this or if yeah if 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 you're listening you're aware of this, but a lot of the time you'll find that the kind of person that's attracted to this, they tend to be quite sensitive inwards people and and often men who are very strongly in touch with their feminine side and they are maybe starting to be fed up with playing it small and allowing as form of emasculation and self-castration to be running through large parts of their life and so they find themselves in this strange place where on the one hand they might have been immersed in a more feminine landscape for a large part of their life and certainly a lot of the men who come through that conversation with Charles are men like that you know I think a lot of a lot of people that are attracted to Charles's work which I'm a big fan of but I think they are typically this kind of inwards feeling imaginal sensitive kind of man you know that that dream of a of a better world with less conflict and and these things and so they come and so typically they have a a very very deep affinity with the magician archetype with the sort of feeling uh close to nature certain shamanic um philosophies and maybe even skills typically very brilliant guys that can also be stuck in their heads uh i think most of all at odds with their own power and not comfortable with expressing really strong, assertive masculinity. And so that's where we come in. And what do you feel is the, like, what is reclaimed there in, in that process? I mean, I have some sense of it as well, you know, because a lot of what you described, like, huh, yep, recognize uh, a lot of myself in there. And uh, pointing to a lot of the work, you know, I've had to go on as well to to begin to integrate these different parts of myself as well, which can often be heavy in the magician and heavy in the lover. Mm-hmm. But um, but I wonder, again, what do you find that is reclaimed, uh, maybe archetypally speaking or, or mythically speaking, for a lot of these men? Yeah. So there are many things that happen. It's a very holistic training. But the first thing that comes to me as you ask that question is that they reclaim a sense of pride for being a man. They, on some mm. level, they heal their male lineage. And and you'll find that there is a great deal of negativity associated with the father archetype in, in today's world. 
And that manifests both for the physical earthly father and the heavenly father as a, as a, as a divine principle. And so we are very much at odds with this. And they come in here through a gateway that feels um, friendly to them on some level. Um, you know, there are other people that are very like, rah, 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 rah. And, and actually, the, the, the older I become, the more I am like that myself as, as, as part of my <laughs> journey. But um, I think then the, this, you know, there's a theme in, in Campbell's work and mythology in general of uh, sa- saving the, your father from the belly of the whale, right? So there's a, there's a, there's a way in which we are evolutionarily prone to demonizing our dad. I mean, it's part of the package, you know, we're, we're, we're supposed to bond strongly with a mother and that becomes this bubble of safety and nurture if we have a good mother and a, a lot of us don't, but also many, many do. And, and, and the dad is sort of hovering on the periphery as some sort of an alien, you know, that represents a threat and an excitement at the same time. And I, so how am I going to deal with this guy? Um, and, and unfortunately, and this is something you mentioned, Aaron John, you know, that's, that's perfectly epitomized through that, through, through that very narrative. There's a, there's a narrative of the cage being locked and the key being under the pillow of the mother. Just like in the story of Parsifal that keeps wearing this homespun garment from his mother. Heart Sorrow is her name, right? And so, mm. and so, the mythical theme of young men or even boys being too closely entangled with the mother principle and not wanting to break out because the world is scary. So we help them break out. We help them sort of come to terms with the fact that I need to, I need to reconcile with what it means to be a man now, and I need to forget, not forget, forgive my dad and so while there's a ton of other themes that are playing out i think this coming to terms with the nobility and dignity of maleness is incredibly big in reclaim the throne beautiful you know i'm racing off now to also the bit in iron john where bly talks about the need for the son to make two rooms in the house of the father or his sense of the father, you know, the sort of positive father and the good qualities that he may possess. And then the need to also create negative room, you know, or the room for the qualities that are shadow and that in some sense, without those two rooms, they have a limited understanding of the father. You know, they either, you know, create a a sort of positive projection and he's the greatest and ignore the shadow or they look only in the shadow and, you know, don't see the light. And I really just appreciated that, that necessity. Um, and then the other thread, of course, is around the mother and the sort of archetypal mother. And to, to you know, I was reading an interesting uh, original review of Iron John from Bly or about, you know, Bly at the time, or like the early 90s. And the reviewer, I think it was New York Times, you know, wasn't that kind. It was a woman uh, who, who brought, you know, a kind of, uh, it's a familiar lens I've seen for those that critique Iron John and, and Bly as a kind of borderline misogynist, um, if not outright, and this idea that he's blaming his mother for like all of his problems. And I, I always thought that they, they didn't quite understand what he's saying there, you know, in the book. And I mean, I would just love for you to touch on that too, with the work that I think you've done is like, is, 
what is the danger of seeing, oh, you know, it's it's the overbearing mother or the smothering mother, and you got to break from the mother, you know, in this kind of uh, sort of harsh or, or blaming way. Um, I don't see it that way personally, but I'm curious to hear your take on, you know, what does it mean to move away from the the home of the archetypal mother for a man's like inner psyche? Well, of course, traditionally, that looks like uh, some kind of ritualized initiation, which is obviously mm-hmm. completely gone from our culture. And so men are men are lost in some comp- compensatory posturing, proving themselves that I'm not actually entangled with mother. And um, different men do that in different uh, ways. But, you know, the worst kind of most, most pathological version of it is, of course, like gang culture and this kind of a thing where, where a young man comes to associate masculinity with something very aggressive and very violent because he hasn't actually been shown a template of of healthy masculinity and and so they 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 become stuck in this never-ending compensatory strategy of trying to prove that they're not a boy but in a way they just dig their hole deeper and deeper and so it's the blind leading the blind I see that as one side of the the sort of re- reactivity or the desire to 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 constantly prove oneself as a boy uh, in the gang example, and I also wonder about this other image that often comes to mind is the the boy sort of you know in the basement playing video games that you know refuses to leave uh, the cocoon in some ways, and yeah, and I'd love to almost touch on that now as a kind of dive into perhaps our own stories, which I think we we seem to share some elements of. Uh, you know, our love of myth and fantasy and, and video games. And then also, you know, what was it in our own stories as well that, that allowed us to, to navigate, um, you know, into the, into the world in a, in a more engaged way. But I'd love to start there. Yeah. Early, early with your own story about, yeah. How did you come to fantasy and video games and the rest? Well, symbolically, this image of a, of a boy or a young man sitting in the basement of his parents or even his mom, um, because a lot of boys obviously grow up without a father. He sat there in the basement, because he doesn't want to be in his mom's face probably, and he's playing computer games, right? There's something about that image that is utterly perverse to me. Symbolically, it's just such a clash of worlds, because the basement itself, symbolically, is very, very clearly associated with the underworld, right? And the underworld inherently is feminine. The underworld is the place you go to to compost yourself and to die. Essentially, it's in in certain ancient cultures in in the traditions, the initiatory traditions. There, they would bring boys. I'd, I'm I'm not clear on exactly what culture this this is, but I've heard this being spoken about. Bringing the boys down into the subterranean cave systems, and you leave them down there, and now they need to find their way back on their own, and that is their initiation. If they don't come up, come back up, they they die, and they don't return to culture. It's pretty much the same thing that happens to these boys. They they they're sent down into the basement, and they never find their way back up. And what is how do they deal with that? They play out heroic fantasies in virtual worlds. They become champions of whatever damsels or whatever apocalyptic realms where you know they need to save save humanity from a virus or from an invasion or whatever. And here he is. I was this guy. It's easy for me for me to speak about this guy. 
here he is feeling the hormones of purpose in his body. Mm. It feels meaningful, but, but that day he doesn't even see the sun. So he has absolutely no access to a genuine masculine principle, mm. which is symbolically associated with light. You need to emerge from the dark and face the world and put something real at stake. That is the hero's quest. There's something that needs to be sacrificed so that I know that I am powerful. I don't need to prove it anymore through posturing. And particularly, the power is associated with a certain kind of humility, right? The the challenge itself has pushed me up against the wall, whatever happened. You know, a, an illness like I experienced is a, one form of quest, one form of initiation. But you can have maybe some guys experience it in at war with brothers in, in, in the trenches. It could be. I think more of them come come back home with PTSD. But uh, but the point being, that boy is just a sad testament to the state of our culture and how we deal with masculine initiation and how we leave boys to be, be sucked on by sort of mythological vampires in dark places. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're left impotent and weak. Powerful image, mythological vampires sucked in the basement. I mean, I'm curious to know a little more of your story as well. Um, you know, growing up again, did did this, did it ever come uh, become a danger for you of you know this feeling of getting sucked in too far? Or was it sort of just enough, you know, to to ignite your imagination? And I'm curious again, what was your journey like with encountering these worlds and how it informed you? Thanks. Oh, well, it went plenty far for me, but nobody knew other than myself because mm. you know as so many i'd mastered i had mastered the 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 art of of playing one game externally and having on another reality internally mm. well i was i think i need to answer this in a slightly more long-winded way and start by saying that you know i was i was popular with the girls when i was little I was I think I was a cute kid, I was intelligent, but I never knew what to do with it. Hmm. I couldn't receive the attention. And so so while while there were many girls in my class that expressed affection for me and that kind of a thing, I I sort of I I, I pulled back because I was scared. I was scared of being rejected. And I was also quite talented in certain athletic disciplines. But at the at the moment, soccer and, and cross-country skiing, but at the moment it came from being a hobby to me having to somehow perform. Again, I pulled back and I, I was scared. So anytime there was some limelight, so some feeling of being on stage, I would crumble. And so all of these inher- in, intrinsic, in, like inherent gifts that I was given by... By virtue of my birth, I couldn't say yes to. I didn't know how because I was terrified. And 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 then, of course, there is a there is a struggle that starts opening up inside of me because I I guess that on some level I know that I'm shafting myself in a serious way, and I I become a teenager and I'm terrified of of 
of girls because they represent the possibility of rejection and um, I basically don't feel very confident and and I also I don't know that then I don't have words to conceptualize it but but I'm sensitive I've grown up with a um, a stronger sense of intuition able to read people be beneath the surface of things and I'm interested in Greek mythology and I love Tolkien and I am that guy that I spoke about earlier that typically comes to reclaim Eden's throne. And um, computer games, of course. Where else to go? I mean, it's exciting. All all of these fantastic narratives of magicians and warriors and damsels. And, you know, you, you get the whole archetypal cocktail and it's, it can just take a sip you know and i feel i feel satisfied in some fake way i mean it there's a bitter aftertaste but you know it also feels good so i i i just i sink deeper and deeper into this world because the outer world the mass the masculine world if you will the actual world of risking and being rejected I, I I don't dare to show up there. And so I need to compensate in the feminine world of introversion and the basement mm. uh, and compensate there with these heroic narratives. And I think the, the best way I can say it, my soul disagrees with my behaviors mm. in a very, very strong way to the point where I start to feel like I'm fragmenting internally. And uh, and I'm I'm worried that I'm about to lose my mind, and that's when when I realize that that I am starting to visualize a future of being institutionalized, and maybe maybe even just snapping and I don't know ending someone one day because I have no concept of how to be with power at that point. So I I, I start to become terrified of myself, rather than being out there and having some momentary fear of rejection i actually enter this dark subterranean world of living in constant fear of myself and so no it wasn't a pretty picture mm. it wasn't <laughs> well thank you for sharing yeah no i wonder just before we move on on to other elements i want to chase down you know i, I had this thought too around this relationship between this fear of rejection and then this sort of real loss of uh, of, of connection to, I don't know, the capacity to to experience another. And I th- I'm thinking in this context of incels, you know, the whole incel phenomenon, which you might be familiar with. It's yeah. the involuntary celibate. And how, yeah. you know, often they're characterized as, you know, younger men that have this deep um, misogyny that has, you know, manifested as the need to lash out against the feminine that has, you know, rejected them or fear of rejecting them. Um, and I just see, you know, of course, that's a very sort of polarized, uh, you know, um, nefarious manifestation of this, but I see the same shades in what you're saying, this kind of loss of connection to the world and also yeah. to even one's own yeah, relationality or sense of worth. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a correct um, association. It's a correct link to make, and I think one of the reasons why, first of all, I'm good at what I do, and also why I have slightly controversial views on the world, is because I've lived that story, mm. and so I'm absolutely flabbergasted by by seeing how how culture relates to a phenomenon like the incel movement. 
if it's even a movement. It's more of a, I don't know, if it's a phenomenon. Or phenomenon, yeah. Because there seems to be a complete absence of empathy and compassion. Hmm. And like the, the view of this is that, oh, look at how toxic men are. And with zero insight into what made them so in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think this is, I think this is something that's happened to our culture for the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years is that we, we completely lost sight of what the masculine psyche represents. And so we no longer know that there are certain fiery themes that play out inside of the mind and soul of a heart and soul of a young man and if you don't actively as a culture rise to the challenge of feeding that hunger then of course you're going to get incels like of course i mean how could you be so bleeding oblivious and ignorant to think that that isn't the natural consequence and that is one of the things that makes me go a bit berserk you know i go a bit apeshit when i see that like the way that we relate to these phenomena of toxic masculinity, all of these things, is the very thing that generates more toxic masculinity. What these guys need is purpose. They need to be seen. They need to be validated by an elder male, a mentor. Like, I see your potential. I see that something lives in you that is quite magnificent and the world needs it. And the fact that we don't have that narrative running at almost at any level of society is just a testament, Ian, to how spiritually anemic and, and, and immature we are as a culture. You know, it strikes me that the, the, when the and, I, and I say this too with a deep degree also of compassion to those that are wounded, and particularly, you know, women that are bitten, trespassed, and, you know, rape is a very real thing. And so there's a yes. real understanding, I think, right, of, of a kind of like need to for that behavior to stop and be called out. And all that stuff is true. And I hear in what you're saying as well, that if it doesn't extend to a sense of understanding about, again, what generates this behavior truly, or what the real longing is that is being misdirected let's say as uh, misogyny towards women which i think yes. is in the case in the incels then yeah it's like we're doomed to kind of uh deal with the symptoms but not to the roots yeah see the misogyny is a result of uh, a failed differentiation from the mother archetype mm-hmm. so they feel absolutely consumed by feminine energy and they don't know how to get out of it because they haven't received a agentic initiation you know, mm-hmm. so they don't have a thrust in life. They don't have a phallic thrust. Even the phallus itself is demonized these days as being patriarchal, misogynistic, oppressive, so on and so forth. And when you do that, it, incels is what you get. Because there is, if you don't show a young man a right way with power, he will develop in his own way a wrong way with power by default. This is the masculine psyche. This is by definition. And so that's what we're seeing now. Yeah, misogyny, of course. Like drenched in it. It's, it's, their, it's their miserable, sorry, futile attempt of trying to differentiate. And they will mm-hmm. never succeed until a man of maturity enters their world and actually starts speaking sense to them. Mm-hmm. You made me think as well of the infamous Gillette ad that you know came out 
maybe yeah know, i remember eight, that a year ago or so <laughs> yeah, and it was fascinating wow. you know i'd love to riff on this for a moment that you know because there's shades i think of what you're touching here that actually explain a bit more of the reactivity right that happened and i've thought about mm. this too where you know the gillette ad for those of you know few have maybe haven't seen it but you can find it on youtube if you like but Really, it was sort of a, a corporation, you know, taking a stand to to point out, you know, toxic masculine behaviors, and then redirect it, or so they thought, you know, in a way towards you know better behaviors. And the the final tagline was something like, you know, be be the best man you can be, or something like that, right? And so the re- the reaction, though, largely from men, I thought was fascinating mm. because the I, what I would argue is that um, there was essentially a backlash to a kind of I would call it uh, a mothering behavioral correction, you know, instinct that that it was almost like the mother was saying, you need to be better and here's how you can be better. Mm-hmm. And the uninitiated masculine reacted to that from this place of ferocity of like, don't tell me what to do, mom. And I yes. saw, you know, I saw men like, you know, they were like videos of them smashing their Gillette gear or, you know, this kind of oh, like... I didn't see those. Oh yeah, and like mocking it. And and again, the the left the feminist left that generated the ad, right? Were like, they were, they didn't understand. Like, what do you, how could you be against this? All we're saying is, you know, stop doing this behavior and do this behavior. Like this is just men again, not wanting to do the work. And I, I saw it very differently. Again, I saw it from this place, like what you're saying. Yeah. It's this place of, uh, it wasn't coming from a mature masculine that was calling them forward. Mm -hmm. uh, My understanding archetypally was coming from, the mothering feminine that was like be better and and of course the reaction was kind of revealed that yeah uh, that's beautiful and uh, of course we're uh, we're walking in somewhat contentious territories right now and that's okay we need to like if we don't have Mm -hmm. these conversations we we are in real trouble Mm -hmm. and um i think i think what they they don't okay i'm i'm going to risk real trouble Women don't understand masculine psychology. I mean, most men don't, Hmm. you know, but inherently a mother beyond a certain age, her role in, in, at least in a more classical archetypal distribution of roles, her role is inherently regressive for him. Hmm. She will keep him trapped in a stage of his own evolutionary journey because in her world, and this is, this is the Parsifal myth. You know, Parsifal, he's been protected by his mother because, because his father and his brothers were knights and they, they died. And his, his mother, of course, doesn't want to lose the, the last male in, in his family and, and her family. But of course, he, he finds the five knights of Arthur's army or whatever and, He's like enthralled and thinks they're gods and amazing. And I want to be a knight as well. You just, you just can't uh, stop that instinct in a boy without getting internalized dysfunction. Because mm-hmm. it's intrinsic to the masculine evolutionary journey. And, and, and the mother doesn't understand this because she's not supposed to. Unless a, unless a mother has really studied masculine psychology and is somehow sort of trying to make herself something that she naturally isn't, not, not quite. It's a little bit unnatural to her. And of course, that's very common these days um, that we, we tend to fight our own intrinsic gender expression because it's been politicized. But um, 
But this is what's so often happening now when education is almost only women, for instance. And so a boy goes to school and everyone that tells him how to be and how to think is female, like 90% or so. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, is, this in, is this in uh, in Norway, you're saying, or just generally in sort of modern uh, West? I, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's something somewhere around there. You know, I keep having women that write me as, as the founder of Claiming the Throne that about the, the, the concern that they have for their boys because they don't see, he doesn't have a single male teacher and he's suffering. Mm-hmm. So this is a reality that I'm faced with through the, through the you know, the, the, the bleeding hearts of mothers that understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And they see him falling into a dark hole of depression because he's not getting fed. And as, as a culture, we don't understand that he even has a hunger. Uh, and so, yeah, my heart gets gets both fiery and 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 full of grief, mm. you know, because because I see what we're doing to ourselves out of sheer ignorance, as we have politicized and turned and turned perennial natural truths. We've rejected them. And turn instead to ideology, where the mind starts being at odds with nature. And so now a boy and a woman is at war with himself or herself, where what I've learned ab- about the world in my mind is completely different to what my body feels. Mm. How am I going to thrive in that experience? And this is the reality that these men in a in a moment of watching a Gillette ad intuitively know. They know, don't castrate me. That's what they feel. Don't tell me that I shouldn't be aggress- aggressive and that I shouldn't be a stand for things and that I shouldn't have territorial uh, boundaries and aspirations because it's intrinsic to the masculine psyche. And it's not inherently destructive. It just needs to be tempered through mentoring and initiation. And that's what we don't do. Mm-hmm. And s- since we don't do it, we only see the dark side of it. And we don't have a vision from healthy masculinity of how to transmute it into positive service to the world. And so inherently, we regress all males into boyhood and, and men don't like it. They don't. Why should they? Well, powerfully said. You know, I'd love to elegantly slide into a sense of what mythology might have been granted through video games, through, you know, fantasy books? Like, what were the pieces that were helpful in your journey as also constructing? Because I know you used, yeah. you utilized a lot of this into constructing a map. Yes. But, but you know, the foundations felt like they were set, you know, in this place. Um, and I just would love to hear you speak on that. So are you asking what my experience with video games meant for the overall arc of my own evolutionary journey? Yeah, and like what 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 would what do you see as actually the the value of almost setting down these like mimetic possibilities of right you know of archetypes and and the journey and purpose? Yeah, well, I think the imagery itself is very evocative, and a lot of uh, my my trainings, uh, content, and experiences, I would say, is somehow influenced by thousands of hours of playing role-playing games in my teens and early 20s. Because cause I was immersed in those worlds, man. I loved it. Mm. 
yeah, it was com- it was associated with suffering because I was in a way turning my back on life. But at the same, you probably know that you, you, you were you playing computer games as well. Yeah, my big so, role playing was Final Fantasy. Oh, right. I never had. I don't know. Was mm. it uh, PlayStation? Yeah, Nintendo and then PlayStation. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, I was always a PC guy. So, so well, well, you probably know a little bit of what I'm talking about, right? Is that um, it is very evocative, and this idea of having a character that you can develop. I mean, it's 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 the evolutionary journey condensed into a very clear container, right? Now I have metrics to associate with with growing. Like I'm level seventeen now, and I have a, I have an emerald sword of the of the of the black dragon plus three or whatever, you know, all of these things. Like whoa, you know, and like it's of course exciting, and then the 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 only thing that keeps us going through an experience like that is the felt sense of being pulled towards more. I want more. I want to grow. I want to expand. I want to be more powerful. That is why I play, right? I want the character to to grow. And I think, I think having such a a lot of time exposed to that um, to that principle of of growing through these challenges, through these quests, through these mythological narratives has been actually maybe more important to how i understand the world than i give it credit for even even this idea you know before i before i got heavily into pc games i i loved arcade games and i would go down the i would go down the uh, the arcade you know and, and and play various games and almost all of these games would have an end of level guardian you know so particularly big big muscle muscle guy or a tank or a big spaceship or whatever and I've co- even that image, I've come to associate it with something very real. We do go through these levels, and at the end of a level, there is an end of level guardian, and we need to we need to vanquish that guardian. Well, a lot of the time, we vanquish that guardian by integrating him mm. or her or it. So that's a little different. Mm. But all in all, there are so many uh, metaphors in computer games that are directly applicable to the psychological journey of transformation. Do you find it the same way, by the way? Like, do you, do you, do you see it that way? Yeah, you know, what I'm reflecting on now is how, you know, if I think of another big one, of course, was Legend of Zelda, which uh, mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've beaten basically all of them until I think maybe the last one that's just recently out. But, uh, you know, I was struck by... Also, the depth of the spirituality that is presented, you know, in these in these yeah. games, you know, particularly yeah. that one, you know, I understand that, you know, it's Japanese in origin and that there's a deeply woven Shinto, you know, foundation that, you know, everything has a Beautiful. spirit and um, there's a real, real beauty with the Triforce, right, as a, as a like mythological um, encapsulation of the relationship between these three powers. If you may know the Triforce, right, the three points are... I never played Zelda. Okay, Zelda. Oh, it's, I mean, it's so right there. Uh, the three elements of the Triforce, which is sort of the main energies or polarities of the, of this, I mean, physical thing called the Triforce, but in, in, um, embodied by three main characters. One is Link, which is courage. The princess, uh, is wisdom. And Ganon, who is essentially the ultimate evil, is power. Mm. And it's really interesting, the interplay 
between these. And I think it's developed over over the years since the very first one. You know, it was maybe very rudimentary, but since then That's it's gotten excellent. very sophisticated, right? And how it's actually, uh, I saw this amazing graphic comic. I think it was done by a fan who actually explored these three these three energies within the series. But he said something really powerful, which is, you know, of course, power without wisdom, you know, becomes, you know, tyrannical. Wisdom without power just becomes philosophizing, yeah. you know, and, and courage without purpose. I mean, I suppose, I don't know, it's, uh, you know, Link generally starts off in his village, you know, not doing much, going for a fish or something. But uh, so there's something that in this activating energy of these all three that is, for me, has been deeply, you know, rep- representative of my own sense of the necessity of these polarities, you know, and as mm. myself and my journey as a man. Um, and I was just, I'm always struck by how, how deep it goes and how early this stuff, you know, was really affecting Sweet. me. I get curious when you talk about it. Mm. Um, I've, I've never played it. I've, I've watched people play it. So maybe I've some, some time in my life held a, a Nintendo controller uh, for, for a few moments, r- mm. running through some fields or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I think I have done that. But I don't have a like a, a lot of experience with it. As I said, I was more of a PC guy. But um, I I notice there is something attractive about uh, attractive about this Triforce. But there's mm. all there's also something missing from it. It's, you know, I uh, I have fallen in love with the map of the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure you and many of the listeners are familiar with it. And so I, I don't hear the presence of the king and the lover in, in the in the in the Triforce, and so I get curious about that. Hmm. You know, this is an interesting bridge, I think, as well, because you know I would look at again, you know, this image of the young man in the basement, you know, playing the video games, and yes. um, you know, I wonder what is the relationship to the to the archetypes. I mean, we see warrior in some ways, right, through the you know willingness to to show up, and you know, there's discipline in some ways of returning to the game and leveling up and all that finishing quests you know but i also see there's a there's an element of the lover but you know i'm trying to really understand it from a place of um where, when does it turn into the deficient lover or i think in you know the 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 shadow lover which is the lack of boundaries it's the um addiction to junk food and you know these kinds mm-hmm. of things and i wonder again like what is it in or how to conjure forth or how did that show up in your journey right how to um, the healthy lover yeah how to activate the lover you know within these realms or maybe jumping off from right. these realms right i don't know that i had a healthy lover when i was a computer gaming addict <laughs> uh, that's for damn sure um i don't know that i have a healthy lover today but it's certainly <laughs> much healthier than it ever has been i am um, i programmed addiction right into me back then and i've uh, i've struggled with screen addiction since you know, and uh, lately I've been getting a little bit into crypto trading as well, and that's not helping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it seems to me like by far the easiest time for me to uh, or connect with the, the lover is in nature and with my actual lover, Michelle. Mm. I think that there's quite the presence of the lover through my creative work, uh, creating a creative, uh, creating initiation, initiatory experiences for men. There's a very aesthetic component in the work that we do in Reclaiming the Throne. But there's a lot I could say here because I think it's easy for for us as men to outsource the responsibility for the lover archetype to our partner, especially if, yeah, if it's a woman. I could be uh, for a gay couple as well. Um, 
but I'm I'm seeing that how, for instance, I was I was separated from Michelle for four months now uh, recently. I, I didn't hardly touch anyone for four months uh, because of, of of course there are all of these uh, limitations on our freedoms now. Um, that are these limitations on our freedom are a direct attack on the healthy lover. Hmm. You know, it becomes exceedingly challenging to to ha- to have a healthy lover in, in during these COVID uh, COVID lockdowns, and so people will intrinsically turn towards addiction, which is the shadow lover. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of people struggling more than ever before with addiction these days, and it's 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 uh, really quite sad. But you know, when uh, when Michelle comes back, or for whoever actually has access to intimacy, now the man we're talking to men, I suppose is. To have to have to have a good partner, that is a mature person. I'm going to speak from the, the hetero perspective because that's my reality. To have a mature woman, because um, I've certainly been in chaotic relationships where it was very stressful to be in intimacy with with my partner at times. But you know, we go through all of those things to find a partner that is mature and that can be with us and that we can build something with. And while I've given away a lot of my responsibility to Michelle for for that lover, uh, I think I think it's just as we mature in love and as we like we just we just selflessly we have received enough love selfishly, maybe that we can start giving it selflessly. I don't know if there's a direct cor- correlation there, but for me, there's certainly, like with any discipline, I need to somehow prove that I, that I don't need it before I like I, I know that I'm abundant with it. You know. Well, it strikes me as interesting then, because returning to this theme as well of the, the the heroic longing played out within, you know, a, a fantasy or mythological context with, say, video games or even watching yeah. movies and things like that. I also feel there's the same phenomenon is happening with the lover within that same context where, you know, it's no surprise often that there is a, a certain degree of eroticism right, in games. Um, you know, yeah. I'm thinking of even a Final Fantasy where, you know, a number of the characters of generally well-endowed uh, women. Uh, mm. and, uh, and if, you know, even if we used to talk about pornography, of course, is a massive addiction for men, young yeah. men in particular. that. There's something about this, like, I guess what I'm trying to understand is like mythically, you know, like what's playing out in that context that, because maybe I'll just name that I see one, the the fear of rejection in the quote real world, right, leads one to find a degree of safety um, yeah. to engage in these these realms, you know, within a within the safety of, a, of the screen and uh, uh, you know, in rejection is it is impossible. You know, in when you are controlling, you know, the narrative, you're the hero yeah, in the story. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so I wonder again, like, what do you say to that, or to how do you see that? How does one step out of that? You know, and and maybe what was the journey for you in stepping out of that? Mm. And and to be clear too, I don't want to shame men that are in this position, right? As in, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm not saying I'm that adept at it either. But I just I'm really curious to to almost speak compassionately as a as a kind of invitation. Yeah, sure. You know? I think um, well now you're speaking to the well endowed women in Final Fantasy and mixed up with um, maybe a certain youthful frustration of not feeling being fully expressed as a man. And I think there's. Um, there, there's a great danger for us as men to um, 
to idealize women and the feminine as some almost unattainable form of perfection that um that becomes almost like a like a sacred object like a, a projection of of an archetypal reality of returning returning to the womb essentially now, if only I can have this woman, everything would be perfect. It's it's basically an infantile longing, uh, and I think for me, I, I've certainly I, I <laughs> it's a bit vulnerable to share, but I I was I was very good at drawing when I was young, so I would even draw a lot of beautiful women, to, and I would practice practice my drawing skills that way you know, as, as a creative, and I would also f- find it erotic, right? It was kind of exciting to have power over the production of beautiful imaginary women but at the same time the the larger storyline there is one of disempowerment actually and and i think here is here's where men need to gradually come to disassociate from the archetypal feminine and to discover the human feminine and as that happens, all of these sort of perfect forms and shapes and whatever, they, they, they're not so important anymore because mm. they are fabrications of an archetypal reality that are, is meant to titillate us as long as we don't want to deal with reality as it, as it exists, you know? So, mm-hmm. no, I, I, I love a lot of the feminine curves, just to be clear, and... Uh, and um, let's just be clear as well that the the way that the industry of titanas has has spread around the world, you know, it's it's not done men a lot of good. You bring up a really important point that I think that there's something to do with the need to weather rejection in order to step mm. out, you know, into the yeah. world. I mean, maybe again, if we're talking heterosexually towards, you know, approaching a woman. Um, or even just in the world as a whole, right? That the fear of rejection or the ability to weather rejection uh, seems to be a necessary capacity. And and I wonder again, like how does one, how does a man bolster his capacity to weather rejection or what have you experienced in the men that you've worked with? You know, what has to come online in a way to be able to, and again, you know, just to say with the women example, I've, you know, a little research into the whole game, you know, pickup artists, you know, things like that. They have yeah. some. They have some sense. I think of, you know, it's a numbers game. You know, so just you know, get good at just saying, you know, asking a ton of women, and a few will say yes. That's sort of their strategy. I'm not advocating that, but uh, but I do think what is this sort of healthy way of uh, being on the receiving end of rejection? Yeah, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. um, I'm thinking about the guy that learns game, and he's just like, oh just just sort of get numb and, and and just ask as many people as possible and just get over it there's a kind of freeze that i'm encouraged to install in my system so that i don't actually get to feel in myself the emotional attachment traumas playing out with the women that i'm speaking with and i don't really yeah, I, I'm also not sure that it's entirely unhealthy. You know, I did that for a little while and I actually found it. Um, I remember a summer where I did that and it was a nice summer. 
you know, I, I, I felt like I expanded and, uh, and it was beautiful. Meaning you, you continued to just ask as many. And yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, chat, I chatted up women and, and uh, I had fun, flirtatious conversations with them. And as I did that, of course, I thought I was, I was a bit of a badass, but I, but I wasn't. I was just a, a clumsy young man uh, finally getting out of my shell. Um, I think the the process of rejection isn't isn't isolated to the realm of intimacy. You know, it's it's something that can happen in sports. It can happen in purpose work. It can happen in all kinds of ways, academically, so on and so forth. And so, whatever I feel inspired to bring into the world i I just like yeah yeah like do it do it and and don't and don't fake it because that's what so many people do these days we live in such an artificial plastic world where everyone is fake on facebook you know or a a, a large part of people instagram instagram lives that kind of thing it's almost like we're, we're we're creating fictional identities so as to run away from rejection. That's not the answer. So for me, these days, I'm sort of grasping for for an answer to your question because I think this is a very profound question and, and I don't know that anyone really fully knows how to answer this. But I know for me, a lot of my strength has developed in taking a clear stand in the world and in the marketplace, if you will, for a certain kind of vision or a certain way of viewing the world. And what I find is that that's a place where I'm willing to weather attacks. And my warrior has come come out more and more. Because this is a game of learning to grow up the warrior. You, you don't know how to deal with the rejection until, you, until your warrior is online. I think that's what's, what a lot of men struggle with is because they haven't given, been given an, a warrior initiation. They are these open, bleeding hearts, you know, that, that just wanting to be loved by women. You just, you just, you do the very thing that you're afraid of enough times until you have some level of, or some level of inner peace as you approach it mm. again. It's not a particularly profound answer, but that's that's the best I can do. On this question of risk and accountability, mm. I myself have found it, you know, very helpful to be in men's spaces where there's somehow something about that alchemical space seems to invite the courage necessary, you know, and the discipline it takes often to, yeah, to reach for those goals or to be held accountable in a way that you know, often seems difficult to, uh, outside of those contexts, or at least, you know, when I'm needing to heroically commit to something myself, you know, if I'm in a group of men and I say, all right, this week, you know, I'm committing to this, somehow it becomes way easier. You know, I found that because there's a clear sense of, well, I don't want to let down you know, my brothers, you know, I've made this commitment to. And so I'd love to hear you speak a little on that too. Like, what is it about the necessity or the the, yeah, the alchemy that comes from spaces like that for men to kind of hold each other accountable and to encourage each other to, to step more into these spaces of, of, of you know, calculated risk. Hmm. Yeah, I, I go to the place of, of asking myself how much of this is cultural and how much of this is biological, this intrinsic to our species, you know, 
Because I, I think that, first of all, I know what you talk uh, speak of, like, very well. And I think generally accountability is, is great for everyone and that women and men take, um, may, I don't know, equal, but uh, maybe, maybe, maybe or maybe not equal uh, support from it. I haven't measured that scientifically, mm. but uh, I know that the the power of being honor bound to a, another man, hopefully one we can call a brother, has a tremendous power. And I do think it's something about this honor code that on some level is just implicit when we drop our modern bullshit and we just get real with ourselves and each other. Um, and I think personally... I haven't read this, but um, it's just it's just natural to me that this has developed um, over over millennia of cultural evolution, and I'm thinking back to hunter gatherer societies where where the women were the gatherers and the men were the hunters, and of course hunting was not a was not a particularly safe activity, and so the the way that we communicate before we go out there and we go after the the prey, it's like if we don't honor our word, men get killed, you know, and the same in war. And so I think it, it runs in our genes somehow that when we have become honor bound to a man by giving our word, then breaking it has potentially very grave consequences. And I think it's a very sad man that doesn't know that intrinsically. That is not an implicit knowing inside of his being that he's just like flippant with it because a lot of guys are these days because they've so fully lost, lost touch with their source, their masculine intrinsic source. But the men who actually still have that intact, they just know that it's just, this is just the, this is the, the water we're swimming in. It's just, it's not even to be questioned. It's part of our cultural biological heritage. Mm. You know, it strikes me too how often difficult it is to see models of that, you know, particularly in things like politics, you know, where it seems to be, of course, the name of the game is to lie uh, as profusely as one can or convincingly, yeah. uh, right? So, yeah, and how painful, and you know, what I would say is actually how, how soul painful it is for a man to look and to see a man in a position of power so shamelessly to lie or to... Um, Ben facts, or, or not even facts, but just to to misuse a position of power um, yeah. in that way, and I and I do think it's that kind of it, you know it, it it comes forth I think as a sort of general distrust of leadership, but I think there's actually like there's also like a soul hurt that happens, particularly with older men, I think, right, with younger men, that there's this sense of you know I'm thinking of Martin Shaw. I said I think one time he might have been quoting Bly, but you know if an older man is not complimenting a younger man, he's hurting him. Mm. is what he said and you know the the older i get the more i kind of actually see that consequence you know mm. to to and that that the soul hunger that young men have for older men to be you know honorable and to be authentic and to mm. and to offer that blessing you know which to me seems very much so part of that king archetype mm. yeah yeah i i just say yeah i didn't hear a question mm. in that but i'm yeah. like yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well ivan as we wind down our conversation here. Um, I wonder what you might say to the listener, you know, who, who 
may or may not be that example of uh, the man who has that longing, you know, to to step forth in a more engaged way. Um, what might you say to them so they might reclaim some of their inner throne? Mm-hmm. I think I think first of all, pay attention to what kind of narratives that compel you in computer games and in TV shows and movies that in and of itself the kind of characters the kind of genres and so on and so forth that you feel compelled by will tell you a lot about yourself and your the particular texture of your own soul where i want to encourage every man to go is the place of realizing that what you're watching on screen is supposed to play out in your life and it may not be supposed to happen in quite as epic of an of a way but there's an archetypal resonance in you that is making the um, the movie the show the game seem compelling and most of the time what compels a man in this way particularly when it's seeing some kind of narrative of something being at stake then it's precisely that which probably compels me and you and all of us as men, it is to live in a world where there is something at stake and that we actually, that we have a part to play. And um, in our world, because of the way that culture has developed, that conversation has almost been clinically removed from culture, that, that there is something so deeply embedded in the masculine psyche of living in service of something big that in turns compels us to step into risk and sacrifice. You could say in a way that the world became too good for men to be strong. And you could also say in a way that the world is developing in such a way that men may need to get strong yet again. Um, and that look at the world and consider it not some scary horror show that will have you shrink back and collapse in on yourself. Look at the world as an invitation and that you are the answer. That's my message. Beautiful words to leave the listener with. Well, thank you for our time today, Ivan. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash network to learn more.